cryptocurrency is a digital currency. It's designed to work as a medium of monetary exchange through transactions on a computer network. It's not reliant on any central authority, such as a government or a bank, to uphold or maintain it. That means it falls to you to protect your cryptocurrency. And sometimes that means you keep it in a wallet, either a digital one or a hardware one. So what happens if you accidentally forget your password to the wallet? This really happened. It happened to Dan Reich and his friend. Back in 2018, they bought $50,000 in cryptocurrency, then locked it within their Treasure One wallet. When they first bought the currency and put it in the wallet, it was at a low value. But years later, its value was somewhere near $2 million. So Reich decided he wanted to cash out. But his friend had lost the paper where he had written the pin and he couldn't remember the digits. Hey, we've all been there. We've locked ourselves out of some account because you can't remember the clever password that we first used. Well, these two, they tried guessing what they thought was a four-digit pin. Turns out it was actually five digits, so right there, they were wrong. And after each failed attempt, the wallet doubled the wait time before they could guess again. But here's the thing, after 16 guesses, the data on the wallet would automatically erase. You know, it's a security feature. So, when they reached about a dozen tries, they stopped. They were afraid to go any further. I suppose this is like when, years ago, you would get a paper stock certificate stating the number of shares that you own. And if you misplaced that or lost that paper certificate, you might be out, say, $2 million. Yeah, like that. Fortunately, this is a digital hardware device. The password is stored on a chip somewhere. So Dan and his friend turned to world-renowned embedded security expert Joe Grand, who looked at the Trezor wallet. Using his amazing hacking skills and unique tools that he's built over the years, Joe was able to extract the password from the chip, and Dan was able to retrieve his cryptocurrency. All of which speaks to the power of hacking. And in a moment, I'll introduce you to someone who hacks both the cryptographic libraries that are so important to cryptocurrencies, but also the software that runs on top. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Vimosi, and in this episode, I'm not going to be advising you about strategies for investing in cryptocurrency, or whether or not cryptocurrencies are even good, or just a Ponzi scheme. Nor am I going to wade into the debate about the ecological consequences of even mining cryptocurrencies. Rather, in this episode, I'm sticking to good old vulnerability research. They say the devil is in the details, and with cryptocurrency, that often means the cryptographic library isn't really implemented right, or sometimes maybe the software on top is just full of bugs. In a moment, we'll meet someone who is actively researching those flaws. For this episode, I do want to weigh in on a very controversial topic within InfoSec today. I'm talking about the correct use of the word crypto. Crypto is derived from the original Greek word kryptos, which simply means hidden. Now, if you've been around InfoSec for any length of time, you're probably thinking about 
Diffie-Hellman, RSA, elliptical curve, or even Shaw. And you're right, cryptography has long been shortened to crypto. But if you're new to InfoSec, then you're probably seeing the word crypto and saying, cool, this is an episode all about cryptocurrencies. And you'd also be right. Crypto has taken on a new meaning in the mainstream as a shortened form of cryptocurrencies. And yes, it's easier to say crypto than repeat cryptocurrency 20 times. Trust me, I know. There's even a cryptocurrency company with that shorter name. So for the sake of this podcast, I'm going to be very clear when we're referring to each. I say that because my guest, well, he's one of the few people in the world who really knows how to fuzz both cryptographic libraries and cryptocurrencies. He even built his own CryptoFuzz project on GitHub. My name is uh, Guido Franke, and uh, I, uh, I work for various companies as a consultant, uh, mostly employing fuzzing uh, to find security vulnerabilities. And uh, well, that's basically what I do on a day-to-day basis. Some of you may recall the name. Guido was my guest on episode 11 when we talked about vulnerabilities he found by fuzz testing the OpenWRT protocol. At that time, more than a year ago, he told me that he had been fuzz testing cryptographic libraries and was starting to look at cryptocurrency. Given the attention to cryptocurrencies in the mainstream today, it seemed like a good idea to follow up with him. So, to get started, let's define cryptocurrency. What does it mean? Yeah, cryptocurrencies are uh, software um, which allow uh, people to... um, transact um, money uh, without a centralized uh, uh, a source so usually when you have uh, uh, when you when you transact money you have banks and things like PayPal and other uh, companies but with cryptocurrencies it's entirely peer to peer it's uh, there is no uh, no uh, central point which dictates which uh, crypt- which transactions uh, are allowed and which not so uh, that, that's basically the the special thing about cryptocurrencies that they are completely independent of any uh, central source. So cryptocurrencies are peer-to-peer currencies whose value rises and falls with demand. For example, if you have too many virtual coins, the value drops. But if you have a scarcity, the value rises because it's unable to meet the demand. So how do you even make these coins? Mining means uh, cracking a puzzle, uh, which uh, which has a, a certain... Uh, amount of time uh, that that it takes, like uh, like ten seconds or something, uh, and you crack uh, a, a hash, and it has to have a certain amount of zeros. And once that's done, you have mined uh, a Bitcoin or an Ethereum or something like that. So uh, it uh, it takes a lot of computing power uh, to do this, and uh, that's also what makes it lucrative. Uh, so there there are companies which only uh, work in uh, work by mining cryptocurrencies, and they make money by this. So once you mine a cryptocurrency, uh, the, the cryptocurrency goes to you and then you you are you are uh, you have made money by that so and this is also a security mechanism of the network which ensures that essentially the, the safety of the network uh, is ensured so the different cryptocurrencies bitcoin ethereum they're different softwares built on top of a concept known as blockchain blockchain has existed long before cryptocurrencies and it's actually quite secure simply this Every time you complete a transaction, a message digest or hash of that action is stored on the chain. Each transaction piggybacks on the previous transaction. That means you can't go back and change something that happened in the past. To do so would change its hash. And since every new hash builds on the previous hash, that would break the blockchain. Get it? 
So the idea here is that every transaction is immutable. That means unchangeable. And when you're talking about money, that's a good thing, right? Well, the, the blockchain aspects makes everything immutable. So if you have like one transaction and then you have a second, then the, the second transaction is stored in such a way that uh, it essentially includes the first transaction in the block. So uh, you essentially have a number of blocks and each block uh, contains a hash, which is based on the previous block. So uh, that makes it uh, impossible to essentially change some transaction that happened years ago, because otherwise the, the whole blockchain uh, would, be, would be incorrect. So blockchains are immutable in that the transactions are transparent to everyone on the network. Someone can look and say, ah, you made a transaction. But there are still ways to hide those transactions. And that's where something called a tumbler comes in. What's that? Well, technically, it's known as currency mixing or blending. A tumbler gathers a number of funds, lumps them together, and then distributes them back out again at random times. So it's very difficult to trace an exact coin. It takes, say, $100 in Bitcoin and it mixes it with others. So at the end, you still have $100, but now your $100 contains records of all those other transactions. And what you're doing then is obfuscating a specific transaction in question by creating even more random transactions. In the real world, this is similar to money laundering. The point is, after doing this, the currency cannot be directly traced back to you. Rather, it still can, but it's going to take someone a lot longer to get there. And this is why perhaps criminals are attracted to cryptocurrencies. Okay, so a tumbler is designed to obfuscate transactions to hide the money where it came from. But there are also legitimate exchanges. Say, I have some Ethereum coins and I want to change them and convert them over to Bitcoin. And sometimes I might even want to use old school currencies. There are exchanges like Coinbase and uh, Kraken and, uh, and some other exchanges in which you can uh, exchange, for example, Bitcoin against Ethereum in a completely decentralized way. So you don't need a, a centralized exchange like, uh, like Coinbase. What's interesting here is that there are a lot of cryptocurrencies, not just Bitcoin, not just Ethereum. And as much as some people talk about breaking free from the tyranny of dollars, renminbi, and rubles, we still have just as many, if not more, cryptocurrencies. And some of these are just variations of the others. So maybe you're familiar with Bitcoin, but there's a bunch of others. And some of these are derivatives of each other's software. Yes, some of them are direct derivatives of Bitcoin. Uh, they're basically clones, but others, uh, others implement an entirely new system. For example, uh, um, internet computer is written from the ground up. It, uh, it has its own logic and its own concepts. It also uses the, the, ba the base concepts like peer-to-peer -peer money and uh, smart contracts, but it, it implements it in an entirely different way. So, um, so some, some of the, the coins are der derivatives and others are written from scratch. I mentioned that Guido started fuzzing cryptography, which is the art of encryption, and it's a well-established science. It's the study of secure communication techniques that allow only the sender and the intended recipient of the message to view its contents. One thing that's always amazed me about cryptography is that you can publicly share the algorithm for any encryption schema. It's not a secret. In fact, it's a best practice to share it. Why? That's so others can look at it and find any faults. 
That's why you occasionally hear about deprecated encryption schemas. Remember WEP? Remember DES? Yeah, someone either defeated these or came very close. So their use was deprecated by the US, NSA, and others. Usually the fix is to increase the key length. So these algorithms and encryption schemas continually develop and continually grow more complex. And the problems now aren't necessarily with the algorithms themselves. They're fairly robust. But in the implementation of those complex algorithms, and that's why Guido started fuzzing cryptographic libraries to see if he could find any faults. And he could. Well, it basically just started as an, a Sunday afternoon project. I thought it would be fun to fuzz uh, cryptographic libraries, but I, I kept building on it and uh, I kept finding more bugs. I find uh, several hundreds of bugs uh, by now. Uh, and basically people started paying me for uh, writing, uh, uh, for, for extending it. So that, that, that's basically how it went. I didn't really have any plans to monetize it, but it just happened. Uh, I, I, I keep adding code to CryptoFast to find more bugs, and uh, that's basically what I, what, I, what I keep doing. So Guido built something himself. He called it CryptoFuzz. We have this concept of fuzz testing, which is to input invalid statements to a target and then monitor the results. Whenever there's a crash, there's usually a vulnerability. Early fuzzers were random, which meant they were considered kind of dumb because all they could do was just throw garbage at the target. Then came guided fuzzers, which were considered smart because they actually monitored the results and then iterated on variations of input based on previous good examples. What was different about creating CryptoFuzz? And really, how does it compare or is it different? Well, the, it's actually what is called a differential fuzzer. So uh, it basically takes uh, two or more cryptographic libraries, uh, for example, OpenSSL and BoringSSL by Google, and then it runs the same operation in both uh, of those libraries at the same time or uh, sequentially, and then compares if the, if the results are the same. And if they're not, then it makes sense that one of them has a box. So if you have like a hash function that's implemented in OpenSSL and the same hash function is implemented in BoringSSL, then I run the hash function in both libraries and I check the result. If the result doesn't match, then one of them must be wrong. So uh, the one nice thing about cryptography is that it's very, uh, very strictly delineated. It's very uh, neatly described uh, how uh, a certain crypto cryptographic primitive should behave. So this makes it uh, very, very, very nice for, for differential fuzzing because I can just run all the operations and, and some libraries and then compare the results. So other than CryptoFuzz, is there any other fuzzer that works with cryptographic libraries? Um, I, I, don't, I don't think so, to be honest, no. Um, there are very other, there are other very extensive crypt, uh, fuzzing projects, but I think no, nothing specifically geared towards uh, uh, fuzzing cryptography. Given the uniqueness of his talent, Guido got asked to look at the security of cryptographic libraries for cryptocurrencies. Yeah, so a few years ago, I didn't really know anything about crypto uh, cryptocurrencies. I think that was 2017. And I was contacted by someone from Ethereum and uh, they asked if I wanted to do some fuzzing for them. 
And basically, at that point, they started uh, reading about crypt, uh, cryptocurrencies, and uh, it kind of went from there. So, but before, I'm not an early adopter or anything. It's not like I ha I've had Bitcoin since 2008 or something. Uh, it's basically since 2017, and uh, that's also when cryptocurrencies started to take off, uh, becoming quite mainstream and popular and stuff. Uh, very large market caps, and I basically uh, been in that space since then. Um, but I, I don't exclusively uh, focus on cryptocurrencies. I also focus on things like open SSL and stuff, which are not related to cryptocurrencies. But uh, it just happens that uh, there's a lot of demand from the crypt cryptocurrency space to audit these cryptographic implementations and related software. So that's basically why I keep, uh, keep working in, in that space. So when he's looking at a cryptocurrency, does Guido use CryptoFuzz exclusively for his research? Um, well, it, it kind of depends on, on uh, what, what, I, what I want, uh, where, in, in which component I want to find bugs. So if it's uh, like the, the WebAssembly uh, uh, engine, then I have to write a fossil for that. If it's uh, cryptography, then I use CryptoFuzz, but it already existed before I started using uh, uh, cryptocurrency. So it kind of depends on what, 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 which component I'm auditing. So given his background, one of the areas of vulnerabilities in cryptocurrencies that Guido has researched is cryptographic libraries. This is where CryptoFuzz makes the most sense, after all. Cryptocurrencies are built on top of cryptographic libraries. Cryptocurrencies employ uh, a number of uh, cryptographic primitives. One is hash functions. Uh, I'm sure uh, some of your listeners are familiar with that. A one-way hash, also known as a message digest, is a mathematical function that takes a variable-length input string and converts it into a fixed-length binary sequence. The important point is that it's a one-way algorithm. That means it's very difficult, if not impossible, to discover the original string from the hash alone. There are many different kinds of hashes. Which one does he see most often? Mostly uh, SHA-256, uh, but also other ones. Um, when I work with cryptocurrency companies, I test these functions and check if they if they contain any bugs. Uh, SHA-256 is pretty easy to implement, so most of the time these don't contain any bugs, but occasionally they do. Like I said, the hash functions are usually fairly easy to implement, so there aren't uh, that many bugs in that. But cryptography, it uh, makes heavy use of cryptography, especially elliptic curve cryptography. is very delicate. Elliptical curve cryptography is a public key cryptography based on the mathematical structure of elliptical curves. An elliptical curve is a set of points that satisfy a specific mathematical equation. If you think of an X and a Y axis creating four different quadrants, then the elliptical curve could be represented as a line curving through all four of those quadrants. A number of interesting properties occur when you do that. There is a, a horizontal symmetry. That means any point on the curve can be reflected or mirrored over the x-axis and remain the same curve. Another interesting property is that any non-vertical line will intersect the curve in at most three different places. Elliptic curve cryptography, which is a public key uh, crypto system, uh, whereby you have a, a public component and a private component. Um, the private component is your secret key, and this guards uh, access to all your funds. And the public component uh, consists of a public key and signatures, uh, which uh, which are uh, open to anyone to see. 
And uh, these, these elliptic curve systems uh, are very, very uh, delicate, very complex. Uh, there can be small errors which can have uh, large consequences. Um, and I use my software CryptoFuzz, which is a fuzzer for, uh, specifically for uh, testing cryptography to test these implementations. Again, encryption works by taking a message and applying some mathematical operation to it to get a random-looking number. Decryption, then, takes the random-looking number and applies a different mathematical operation to get back the original number. And the elliptic curve cryptography uh, relies in, in, uh, on, on mathematics, and there are a number of mathematic, uh, mathematical uh, primitives which are implemented. And if they are wrong even slightly, then th that can uh, make the, the whole elliptic curve system uh, invalid, if you will. So um, it's, uh, there's a lot of moving parts, a lot of uh, rules where you have to abide by if you are implementing something like that. So uh, that, that is something that comes up often. And, uh, I'm when when I when I start fuzzing a, a new library that I haven't tested uh, before, if it implements elliptic curve cryptography, that's it's almost certain that I will find something even before testing it because I'm, I'm so used to finding uh, elliptic curve bugs that uh, that I'm, I'm pretty confident that at this point, if if, so, if a library hasn't been fuzzed before, then it, it, there are probably going to be bugs. There's a saying in InfoSec about never rolling your own encryption. Often you just don't have enough entropy or enough randomness. So someone can come along and simply guess your keys because they're too short. They're too predictable. But then there's the implementation. When you first use cryptography, even a well-established cryptographic standard, there's a good chance that you may have gotten something wrong. Uh, testing cryptography to test these implementations and I've, I found a lot of bugs in the past in various cryptocurrencies like uh, I don't know um, Ethereum and, and other ones uh, and it's um, uh, well uh, like I said it's very delicate stuff so it's, it's, it's even for professional programmers it's uh, easy to get something wrong in, in these implementations and might software test this and uh, check if there are any bugs. So and in some cases, even uh, these implementations have assembly optimized uh, code, which makes it even more delicate because assembly language is very hard to get right. Assembly language is any low-level programming language in which there is a strong correspondence between the instructions in the language and the architecture's machine code instructions. Also in non-cryptocurrencies, -crypto uh, like OpenSSL has, has had a number of bugs in, in the assembly language optimizations. For example, if you have to compute uh, the modular X exponent, uh, then uh, OpenSSL implements this in assembly language, and there have, has been a number of bugs in this, and that in turn can affect cryptography, which, which can make it vulnerable to certain attacks. You may remember Heartbleed. I covered that in episode 10. Basically, fuzzing was used to find data leakage that was the result of a poor implementation of the heartbeat protocol in OpenSSL. Given his work fuzzing cryptographic libraries, is there anything that Guido finds more often than not when he's looking at cryptocurrencies? One uh, um, mathematical primitive is called the inverse modulo. Uh, it's a certain certain mathematical operation, and, and this is, appears to be very hard to get right. And like I said, sometimes this is also implemented in assembly language because things have to be as fast as possible, and assembly language is sometimes a little faster than C or C++. So uh, that's, that's uh, often a source of bugs.
If the first area for finding vulnerabilities in cryptocurrency is cryptography, then the second area where Guido finds success is in the small programs known as smart contracts. In the smart contracts, uh, this allows any person who is participating in the network to run arbitrary code on the on the blockchain, um, in which you can implement uh, arbitrary logic for uh, um, distributing uh, money. So if you can implement uh, a smart contract, which if someone uh, sends a certain uh, uh, code to it, then it sends money to another person. So it essentially, um, uh, unlike banks, which are basically uh, simple uh, transactions from one person to another, you can uh, use smart contracts to implement arbitrary logic on how this uh, money should be distributed. First of all, smart contracts are not legal documents. They don't need a notary or a lawyer. Rather, they're little programs that execute on top of the cryptocurrency that execute, say, your desire to sell. But since they're little programs, they can do other things as well. But smart contracts allow arbitrary code to be run inside the virtual machine. And this virtual machine is implemented in the cryptocurrency. And basically each participant in the network runs this uh, smart contract if someone pushes it, it onto the network. So, and it's uh, very important, of course, that um, this virtual machine doesn't have any bugs, which could allow uh, a malicious smart contract to escape the virtual machine and uh, result in something like arbitrary code execution. Cryptocurrencies use virtual machines. What's that? A virtual machine is a software emulation of a computer system. So software is used to create computer architectures and provide functionality of a physical computer. And they're not unusual. Java uses a virtual machine to run and sandbox all of its applications. The cryptocurrency Ethereum has its own, too. It's called EVM. So it's uh, very important that these virtual machines are very safe. There are a number of uh, different virtual machines. Uh, Ethereum implements it, its own uh, virtual machine. It's basically a, a virtual CPU written from scratch. It's called the EVM. Um, it's, it's implemented by Ethereum, but also some other uh, cryptocurrencies. So we've talked a lot about Guido using CryptoFuzz, but he also uses traditional fuzz testing as well. The Ethereum contracts are usually written in Solidity, which is a purpose-built uh, language for Ethereum. So almost all uh, Ethereum smart contracts are written in Solidity. And Solidity is basically uh, kind of based off JavaScript, uh, C++, Java. It's basically the, the same kind of syntax. Um, the WebAssembly ones are, are written in Rust, uh, but uh, also EOS uh, also supports WebAssembly, and, and those contracts are usually written in C++. Uh, and that, of course, comes with its own set of problems, because in C++ you can have things like buffer overflows and stuff like that. So um, there, are, there are various programming languages for uh, smart contracts. Yeah, the, the CryptoFuzz is used for uh, finding uh, bugs in the, in the implementations of the cryptography, but uh, you can also use fuzzing to fuzz smart contracts. So, but you have basically have to, uh, to use the EVM and run the code inside the EVM. Fuzzing inside a virtual machine is challenging, but it can be done. In episode 28, I talked with researchers who fuzzed Hyper-V, a virtual machine used in Microsoft Azure Cloud. Here, in cryptocurrencies, Guido came up against WebAssembly. It's a binary instruction format for a stack-based virtual machine. 
WebAssembly describes memory-safe sandbox execution environments that may be implemented inside an existing JavaScript virtual machine. Other cryptocurrencies uh, use WebAssembly, so you can compile any arbitrary uh, program into WebAssembly and then run it basically on on the on the cryptocurrency. So, for example, EOS and uh, Near Parity Internet Computer, they all implement uh, WebAssembly. And WebAssembly implementations uh, are, are also very complex because they have to run arbitrary code. Sometimes they use optimizations like just-in-time compilation, and all this stuff makes it uh, very susceptible to bugs. So uh, that, that's a nice thing to 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 be fuzzing. Uh, oftentimes, you will also also find bugs in these Web, WebAssembly uh, implementations because it's just very complex and very hard to get right. And one other thing, uh, Solana uses the, the Berkeley packet filter. This is also a type of uh, programming concept uh, which they which they are using. So the, those are three uh, three types of uh, virtual machines which are used in cryptocurrencies, and there might be even more. So um, and uh, so, like I said, if you can es escape the the virtual machine and uh, run arbitrary code on the on the on the user's computer that would be disastrous because that that's not what you want remote code execution so it, it has to, the virtual machine has to be very safe but also things like denial of service attacks if you can run a smart contract and then make uh, the, the the whole network hang or crash that that's also disastrous because you can take the entire network down with something like that so those are all uh, types of uh, weaknesses that can exist in, in smart contracts and, and the virtual machines in which they run. So far, to find vulnerabilities in cryptocurrencies, we've talked about cryptography and smart contracts. A third area, then, where Guido and others find vulnerabilities are in the network itself. Remember, cryptocurrencies are based on blockchains and that they record everything. That blockchain is distributed so everyone has a copy so you can't go back and change it because it's baked into the chain and there's a consensus on what the chain contains. Then again, there are ways that that can be subverted. So there is not, not a central server in, uh, in cryptocurrency. All the, the participants talk to each other. Uh, these are called nodes. The nodes uh, use net, the, the internet to talk to each other, and they are, therefore they are suspect, susceptible to uh, processing untrusted data from other nodes. And if the cryptocurrency contains a bug, then uh, this could crash the, the, the nodes. So uh, that, that's also an important aspect that, has, that cryptocurrencies have to do entirely right, otherwise there are vulnerabilities which could crash the network. Perhaps we should get a better understanding of what we mean when we say network. Yeah, so uh, this is basically the same as, uh, as regular software, which uses the network. If you have like a video game or something and you're playing with your friends and you could send a malicious packet to your friend and crash his computer, well, that, that would be a vulnerability. Uh, the same is true for cryptocurrencies. Uh, you, the, the network component has to be very safe. Um, usually uh, a certain amount of uh, certain type of information is transact, tra transferred between all these nodes and the parsing of this information has to be uh, flawless. It cannot result in crashes or hangs or excessive memory usage or stuff like that because if you could do that then you could crash the whole network by basically sending this malicious pack packet to all the participants in the network. So that, that's something that's uh, if, if there's a bug in the network component that's critical as well. 
Remember, the value of cryptocurrencies, like the stock market, fluctuate. So if your network goes down and the value does something, you miss out. You could be talking about losing a lot of money. That's pretty significant compared to your video game going down. And uh, one interesting thing to note is that uh, in regular software, if, for example, video games or web servers, if you can make the, the, the program crash, that's at most con inconvenient, but it's not uh, going to result in a compromise. For example, if you, if you are running a video game and I can crash your video game, then you can just restart it. It's, it's, it's inconvenient, but it's not, uh, it's not that I have compromised your computer then. Right. So this speaks to the distributed nature of cryptocurrency in that there isn't one bank, but copies of every transaction encoded on each blockchain. Copies of each blockchain then is distributed throughout the peer-to-peer -peer network. But in the case of cryptocurrencies, if you can crash the whole network, then uh, that could result in a, in a lot of um, money being lost because you can essentially take over the network. So here's where it gets interesting. What if you not only take down the network, but you also take over the network, or at least a majority of the nodes on that network? There is this concept in cryptocurrencies called the 51% attack, which means if you have uh, more than 50% control of the network, then you can rewrite transactions. And you can uh, essentially make money off of that because you can uh, undo certain transactions and, and do, or do them again. And uh, th that's, that's uh, an important uh, aspect of denial of service box in cryptocurrencies that you can uh, essentially take down the network or significant portions of it and then uh, assume control of the network. So that got me wondering, given the 50% rule, is it better to go with a bigger coin like Ethereum? Well, I don't know, because uh, I think in um, the, the, the people who uh, are participants in the network, they, they might be uh, comprised of, of uh, groups of people altogether. So I, I don't think it, I don't think it necessarily makes sense to uh, use, a, use a larger coin. But it is true that, uh, that more participants in the network, the, the better the security of the network. But on the other hand, if you, if if a, if a coin doesn't have many participants, then that's also an incentive to mine coins for the network, because in Ethereum there are already many miners, and smaller coins not that much. So it's also an incentive to participate in smaller coins. I know some of these coins have lost value for various reasons. Probably the simplest answer is to say that the key was stolen and the funds were no longer accessible. But there is a possibility that vulnerabilities may be contributing to some of the financial losses. Uh, yeah, usually it isn't the case that the key is stolen, but uh, like I said, these, uh, these smart contracts implement arbitrary logic, and sometimes it's, it can be very complex what they, what they are doing. And um, like I said, they distribute money, distribute money based on their arbitrary logic, and they receive money. Uh, and if there is a, a logic flaw in, in, in the contract, then that can lead to sending uh, money to the wrong person. So that's basically how these things are, are done. Um, these are smart contracts, bo contract box, and um, well, usually they're all open source, so you can look at them. And if you're uh, experienced enough in reading the stuff, then you can sometimes find bugs. And that's also what these, uh, these, these, these people do who steal millions of dollars sometimes. They read the smart contracts, they find the bug. And if they find one, they can find a way to make the contract send money to them instead of uh, whatever it's supposed to do.
Do you think enough researchers are looking at the open source and looking at the uh, vulnerabilities related to cryptocurrency? Yeah, I think yeah, the, 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 there's a lot of money going around in this in the space, and uh, smart contract creators are often uh, funding audits for for this. Uh, for these uh, contracts, but even even in the in the event of an audit, that can still of course be bugs. Uh, it can an, an auditor can still miss some bugs. So uh, it's it's all uh, you you basically never have an absolute guarantee that that it's bug free. After recording this interview with Guido, he reported on Twitter how he had accidentally found a math vulnerability in Ethereum. It isn't likely to be exploited, he said, but. It does once again point to the complicated nature of cryptography and the need to get it right when you're talking about currencies. And in early 2022, a company, Crypto.com, reported that it was missing $14 million. Missing. At this time, there's no reason to suspect that someone necessarily stole the coins through a vulnerability, although that is a possibility. The result of this loss and other news around cryptocurrencies is that the collective belief in cryptocurrencies in general has been shattered, and the value fell as various people cashed in their holdings. The market has lost over $1 trillion just in the first month of 2022, for example, which is why we need more research on cryptocurrencies to show that they are fundamentally sound. Fortunately, I have you covered. I do have a second guest coming up in the next episode, and this person will also talk about hacking cryptocurrencies, not with fuzz testing, but with more traditional static analysis. So think of this as a two-part discussion on cryptocurrencies, with this episode, episode 39, building on the foundations, and episode 40, then expanding on the types of hacks that are possible. Episode 40, coming in two weeks. I hope to see you then. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at Robert Vimosi on Twitter or join me on subreddit or Discord. You can find the deets at hackermine.com. The Hacker Mine is brought to you every two weeks, commercial-free, by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mine, I remain the original blockchain Robert Vimosi.